Hey, good morning. Welcome. We're so glad you're here. Um, I have some special kids to introduce you to this morning. Um, this summer, for the first time, we did a scripture memory challenge bingo game. And so there was a bingo card that had 25 verses on it. And lots of kids in the church memorized five verses in a row to get a bingo and got a prize. These six kiddos did not just memorize five verses. They memorized all 25 verses on the entire bingo card. So as a part of their grand prize, they get to come up here on the platform and hear all of you guys clap for them. But they also are all getting two free movie tickets. So you get to take a parent and go see a movie of your choice, okay? So if you see these guys in the hallway, um, feel free to ask them to tell you one of their 25 verses. I promised them I wouldn't make them say a verse in front of all of you this morning, but we are just so super proud of them, and um, we're so thankful for their parents who helped them a lot um, in memorizing all of these verses this summer, um, and especially um, Lucia and Lucas here uh, learned their verses in English, which is not even their first language, so that was another big extra bonus, big step for them this summer, too, so... That's all I got. So if you see him, give him a high five, ask him to tell you a verse. And um, yeah. Now, if you would stand for our scripture reading today, the sermon text today comes from Acts chapter 13. We're going to read the first 12 verses. Now, there were in the church in Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John there to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So we are obviously starting Acts chapter 13 in our walk through the book of Acts. And in this passage is when we see the first recorded example of missions 
the full scope of missions playing out in church history. So up until the point, this point, we do have some people with missionary type experiences. You have the new believers in Jerusalem as persecution was rising, they were sent out, they were kind of pushed out of Jerusalem and they shared their faith all, all, all the while. So they, there was a type of missionary experience, but what we have going on here is different. We have a local church, organizing to send a team into a place where the gospel is not to see Christ known, God worshiped, and churches planted. So this is something totally new in the development of the Christian church. Every theologian, every commentator, however they choose to divide the, the book of Acts up, and there are many different proposed divisions, every one of them says this chapter is something new. This chapter, for many reasons, is a new era in church history and a new chapter in Luke's unfolding of what happened in the early church. Now, I've said this probably half a dozen times, maybe more, as we've gone from Acts 1 to 13 now, but we have to understand when we talk about major transitions in the development of the church, we have to think about why it is that Luke is writing this book. Remember, there's a man named Theophilus. We don't know exactly who Theophilus was. Some, I like that some have posited he's Paul's defense attorney in Rome. I don't know. But we do know that this man, Theophilus, was asking a question. The question is, how is it that this small religious sect in Jerusalem literally became this new religion conquering the empire from his perspective? How did this small Jewish sect become this whole new thing that's conquering the empire? And Luke's answer to Theophilus in Acts 1-8 is basically because Jesus said it would. This is exactly what Jesus said would happen. So you go to Acts 1-8. This is the thesis for the entire book of Acts. This is Jesus speaking. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So how did all this happen? Luke's saying, this is exactly what Jesus said would happen. And you look at the unfolding of Acts. In Acts chapter two, the gospel went to the Jews. In Acts chapter eight, it went to the half Jews of Judea and Samaria. In chapter 10, we have Cornelius, the first Gentile convert. And here we have this next chapter in the gospel going to the Gentiles as churches organize themselves to bring the gospel where it isn't. So all of the book of Acts is just explaining, Jesus said it would happen in this way, now let me show you how it happened. And so this passage, I wanna look at it under this banner of missions. And I want us to see the sending church, the sending spirit, and the sent ones. So that's how we're gonna walk through this passage. So first, the sending church. The sending church here, of course, is Antioch. We, we looked at the development of Antioch a few uh, weeks ago in Acts chapter 11, and, and we noted that up until this point, the main most influential church in the world is the church in Jerusalem, which makes sense. But what we're seeing now is a shift. The influence is going from the church in Jerusalem to the church in Antioch, which will be the most influential church in the world for a time. It is the main sending force of missionaries throughout the Roman Empire. It is, of course, Paul's home base for a period of time. 
And when we look at this as ascending church, I don't think it's a coincidence that, that God shows us some very specific things about what that church was doing, what they looked like. Of course, God can use any church God wants to use, but in his providence, he shows us some things about this church that made it healthy that we as a church today should want to, to embody and employ ourselves if we are going to be a church that can go and plant other churches, both locally and globally. So, there are three things about this sending church that I think we need to see very clearly. And the first is that this church was discipled really well. Verse one, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, plural, prophets and teachers. Luke names five of them. We'll look at them in a minute. There could well have been more than five. So where in the world did this church get all these teachers? I mean, this, is, this church has just been planted. They're very young. They're way out in Gentile territory. Where did we, they, they get all these teachers and prophets to be discipled so well? Well, we, we learn, we see that in Acts chapter 11. Antioch's getting going. The church in Jerusalem is at best um, curious, at worst concerned, like what in the world is happening out there? Are they being faithful to the gospel? Are they teaching our, our scriptures faithfully? So they send Barnabas to go and investigate. Well, that's teacher one. And then Barnabas shows up and it seems like he showed up and immediately realized that this church needed more than just him. I mean, he, 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 he came and the, one of the first things he did is decide he was going to go find Saul. Remember, Saul was converted at this point 10 years ago, and he's been in, in kind of sidelined, it, it would feel like, in both Arabia and Tarsus. And you get the feeling that he's probably largely forgotten by a lot of the Christians at the time. But then Barnabas remembers, oh, there's Saul. He's in Tarsus. He's not doing anything, I guess. And I'm going to go get him. And he can help us disciple this church that needs a lot of discipleship. And that is what he does. And what I really stopped and, and thought about a lot was Barnabas' humility here. You know, I've seen lots of churches where the leadership loves the, the power that they have, or you know, kind of some CEO or Pope-like pastor that, that wants to push other influences out and be able to retain the influence that that person has. Barnabas is something totally different here. Barnabas is humble. He doesn't care to be the Pope of the church. He doesn't care to be the CEO of the church. He wants that church to succeed and be successful the way God defines success. And so he shares that influence. He shares the teaching in that church. He may well have recruited almost everybody on this list. I don't know, but we know that he recruited Saul. So this is an important principle for us to think about as a church. Because almost everyone here has some sort of discipleship, stewardship in your life. If you don't, you will. You, know, you may be an elder, you may be a community group leader, you may be an intern or a resident or teach children's Sunday school, you may be a parent or a grandparent, and if any of those apply to you, then, then you have some, dis, some stewardship of disciple making on your hands. And any of us who have that stewardship, we need to remember that we are not Jesus to these people. Only Jesus is Jesus. And so what we want to do is humbly expose those people in our care to all kinds of great, trusted, and faithful teachers that they can, be, that they can have access to so that we can all be discipled well. 
it's a very good thing that, that, that I am not the only teacher that this church has. <laughs> and that was clearly Barnabas's view. You don't want, Barnabas, it feels like, was saying, you don't want me to be the only church teacher that you have. We need, to, we need to find more teachers. And he makes that happen. And in the same way, if, if we don't, if we don't make a priority of identifying, investing in, building up and platforming teachers and disciple makers, then we will be stunted in our growth and we're not gonna have anybody to send out. So discipleship, it was important to that church. It was a part of what made them successful in their missions endeavor. And if we wanna be successful in that way, it has to be true here too. Second, we see that the church was diverse. They were diverse in skin color, but their diversity goes way beyond that. They were diverse in ethnicity, in age, in social class, um, in culture. And, and I do want to say, and we'll walk through this diversity in a minute, but I want to say the church doesn't seek diversity for diversity's sake. The church doesn't seek diversity because the culture around us tells us that diversity is important. The church seeks diversity because God cares about diversity. We're told he is raising up a church of every tribe, tongue, and nation that will be beautifully still diverse in the kingdom to come, but unified in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is God's mission, so we care about diversity. And we see in the people that Luke is naming here an unbelievably diverse church. Let's just walk through. You have Barnabas. Barnabas is a Jew. And he's not just a Jew, he's a Levite, so he's a Jewish priest. He's from Cyprus, which means he was a part of the Jewish diaspora. Generations earlier, when the Jews were sent into exile, Barnabas's family was one of those people. So he grew up in Gentile culture, which means he understood Gentile culture. This is a, a culture he could relate to. Then we have Simeon, also called Niger. Niger comes from the Latin word dark or black. Every commentary I read says this is surely talking about the color of his skin. So you have a black man who is a very distinguished leader in this church. Then we have Lucius of Cyrene, which is fascinating to me because Lu Lucius is a Latin name, which means he grew up in Roman culture. But we know from Acts chapter 11, remember as persecution rose in Jerusalem, people were sent out sharing the gospel all along the way, but only to Jews, only to Hebrew speaking Jews. But at some point, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, where Lucius is from, got the idea in Antioch to begin sharing the gospel with Greek speakers. So in all likelihood, Lucius is one of the founders of this church. So that's Lucius, who, it, it, the whole idea of a missionary endeavor isn't new to Lucius because he has been doing this for some time on his own, but doing it. Then we have this interesting guy named Menaean. Menaean is a Greek form of a Hebrew name, which means he's probably a Hellenistic Jew. He, he probably, he's a Jew who grew up in Greek culture. And Luke has this really rare Greek word to describe the relationship that he had with Herod, okay? So Herod, the, the Tetrarch, who, this is the same Herod who had John the Baptist killed. This is the same Herod who participated, although indifferently, in, in Jesus's trial. So Luke says this, this guy, Menaean, was, the literal translation is, is friend, but it's a really rare word. It's not the word you would usually use for friend. I think the ESV says longtime friend. The, the word is like, I grew up with him. 
You know, if I grew up with you, that, 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 that's communicating something different about the relationship that I have with you. And so what's being communicated, this guy, Menaean, he grew up with Herod. I mean, he, he was at least a part of the upper social class, if not some sort of prince himself. So he would have personally known a lot of the high social class that was, in, that was ruling in that day. And of course, Menaean and Herod went very different paths because Menaean is now a leader in a local church serving Jesus Christ. And then we lastly go from Menaean to Saul. Saul, who we, of course, know more commonly as Paul, he is not only a Jew, he's a former Pharisee, a Pharisee of Pharisees who heavily persecuted the Christian church and now is a Christian himself. You know, it's not lost on me that so much of what we're looking at is encapsulated in the letter Saul wrote to the Romans. The, the letter to the Romans is, you know, people make it out like it's Paul's systematic theology. That's not what it is. There is a problem in Rome, and that problem is division between cultures, Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians are not getting along, and Paul's saying this is a big deal, not just for your gospel witness, but Paul's saying, I, I, my sending church is Antioch, and I now want to go to Spain, which makes you, Rome, a better logical sending church, but if you're going to be divided among your cultures, you can't send well. A divided church that isn't united, is divided on culture, not united in the gospel, is not going to make a global impact. That's the whole reason that he was writing to the Romans, so that they could support him more effectively and more fruitfully in his trip to Spain. So this is Saul coming back into the picture. A, di a diverse church is a strong church if it is also unified in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This church, just between the five people that Luke has mentioned, can engage and interact with pretty much any type of person in the Roman Empire in that day. They had those skills. So, so there's, there's, a, there's a human side to missions. We're gonna see God's side to missions here in just a second, but they're both here and you have to see, we can't help but see the way that their unity in the gospel amongst the diversity of culture and class they have in this church enabled them to go and take the gospel more effectively into the world where it wasn't. So they're discipled well, they're diverse, and then thirdly, they're spiritually serious. We see in verse two, they were worshiping and fasting. So worshiping is something that I think most of us, we, we have an idea what that looks like. Fasting, not so much. Fasting is probably the most neglected of all the spiritual disciplines because we don't really know how to do it and then we don't do it, which makes us not know how to do it even more and it's like this spiraling circle into becoming a whole church of I'm not even gonna ask anybody here to raise their hand if you fasted in the last six months because I think we would all be very discouraged. But this is a part of being a serious church. And what a lot of us, I think, myself included at times, don't realize is that when we fast, we're not fasting to get something that we don't have. We're fasting as a response to who we already have in our lives. We have the presence of God in our lives, so we willingly go without a meal or something else to in turn worship God, pray to God, meditate, and get to experience and know him at a more deep level. This church was doing that. 
they believed that they should be a church that seeks God, that they should be a church that, that will and can experience God. They believed that they could actually hear from God and hear they did. They heard the Holy Spirit say, set apart Barnabas and Saul. They're the ones who are going to be sent. So this whole missions thing, this wasn't a a result of a great brainstorming session or a a really killer strategic plan or a whiteboard session. This was about a church seriously knowing God and wanting to understand his will for their church and they heard. So clearly they can say the Holy Spirit said to us. This is an area I'm a little bit convicted on because I'm more of like a shoot first, aim later kind of guy. If you know me well, you've seen that. This is something I've had to work at over the years. Like to, I have like ideas and plans. They come in my mind. What doesn't come naturally is what we see in this text. Stop, pray, listen. Get, just, let's wait and see what God might might do. I have, um, I didn't even plan on saying this, so this is extra. But I have three God told me moments in my life. Um, and you know, for some of you, that's, that's three too many. For others of you, like only three, I've got my three, all right? God told me. And one of them was when it was clear that there was a transition from my former church to this one. And I, I, I it was just, it, it, things were good. It was just clear. The elders were encouraging of me, like, Jim, it, it's time. They used to say, stay as long as you want, but it's time to go. You, you, need, to, you need to be leaving the nest. And so I, I started applying at all these churches, coming up with my plans for our family. And I had this just something short of audible experience where God said, wait, just wait. I'm not good at, but I heard it loud and clear, and I waited, and after a period of time, in the span of like six weeks, three churches in Orlando called me. You were one of them. I didn't know you were in at the time, but I was like, all right, God, it was so clear to Angela and me. We waited. Orlando's the place. Which church? Have no idea, but it was clear. So, something that I'm growing in myself But if we want to be a church that does God's will, we have to be spiritually serious and willing to experience God, designed to experience who he is more than what he can do with us. All right, that's the sending church. Again, there's a man side, there is a, a God side. Now we transition to the God side and we see the sending spirit. The mission of the church is not primarily the church's. The mission of the church is primarily God's. It's his idea, it's his plan, he's the one who powers it, and you see this all over the book of Acts. Obviously, it's in our passage as well, but it's the Holy Spirit, we've already seen, who calls, set aside Saul and Barnabas. Then it's the Holy Spirit who sends, and notice I'm saying who, The Holy Spirit is a he, he is a who, he is the third person of the Trinity, he is a part of the Godhead, he is not an it. He is not like a, I don't know, a Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter magic spell. You know, he's not who Simon the magician in Acts chapter 8 thought he was, just kind of this better kind of magic to do more impressive spells. This is the God of the universe. He is not a power to be wielded. He is a God who empowers for his purposes and his good. And this is the one who's not only calling, but sending in verse two, while they were worshiping the Lord, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them to do. 
And I think it's interesting who the Holy Spirit picks. Now, I, what I've got to be careful of is, is drifting, is always equating gifting with calling. I'm not trying to do that. God calls people who God calls for God's reasons. But I can't help but see in this passage who it is who set aside and how the Saul and Barnabas would not have been the people that most American churches set aside to send because they're their best people. Like Saul and Barnabas are the ones who are teaching everybody. They're the ones who have, you know, in Saul's case, known Jesus, the resurrected Jesus personally. You know, in the American church, we have this idea, you have these people who feel called, then, you know, we take the most gifted and they need to pastor large churches. And then like a tier down, medium and smaller churches and whatever we have left over, missionaries. I'm telling you, I've been a missionary and I've been a pastor. Being a missionary is so much harder. This is easy compared to what a lot of these missionaries do. I don't have to learn a whole new culture and a whole new language. I don't have to start everything from scratch. A lot of you were already here. I don't have to raise all my financial support to go and do this thing. The skill sets needed to be a missionary, humanly speaking, are significant. In the American church, we, we've kind of got this reversed a little bit, but this is who the Holy Spirit calls, and this is who the church willingly sends. That had to hurt to lose Saul and Barnabas and presumably some others. I do know a lot of missionaries. I'm very thankful to, to have these kind of relationships, but I don't know one missionary who is under any kind of illusion that they're the ones ultimately, who are making their mission work work. I mean, every missionary I know has this deep sense of, if not for God, this is crazy. There's no way we could do this. The Holy Spirit is not just the one calling, but empowering, and we see this really clearly in verse four. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there, they sailed to Cyprus. So called by the Holy Spirit, sent out by the Holy Spirit. I'm going to skip a little bit ahead and see in verse nine, the Holy Spirit doesn't stop at that point. The Holy Spirit is also going with them. But Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, said something pretty cool that we'll get to in a minute. So the Holy Spirit is calling, the Holy Spirit is sending, and then the Holy Spirit is empowering all along the way. I mean, just imagine if you've ever known a missionary or been around any kind of missions activity, the sheer impossibility of the task. I, mean, I was a missionary for five years and every day the impossibility of what we were called to do was clearly in front of all of us. There was a deep sense if the Holy Spirit doesn't do something, this ain't gonna work. But we got to see God in that dependence graciously do some pretty amazing things. I had like three stories written out and I only can fit one in. But one time, I was fishing with another Christian friend and an unbelieving friend that we'd been sharing with, and it was a horrible fishing day. Nobody had caught anything, and this, this unbeliever looked at us and said, I guess God's not here today. And like 24-year-old me was like, I guess not. I don't, I don't know what to say. But fortunately, this other Christian was there, and he stood up like with the boldness that we're gonna see Paul stand up, and he said, don't ever say that. Do you not know, and he pointed to his rod, God is always here, and if he wanted you to catch the biggest fish of the day, he would right now. And the moment he said now, that rod went down, he caught this massive fish, and later that week professed faith in Jesus Christ. 
There was, none of us were under any illusion that that was our doing. This was the Holy Spirit working the way the Holy Spirit works, which should give us a lot of confidence, both, both as those who were called to go and those who were called to send and let go of the goers, the sent ones. Now, let's look at just that, the sent ones. Back to verse four, and then we're gonna move quickly through the story. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So the first thing we observe is where they went. They're going to Cyprus. Cyprus is a large island to the south of Turkey, west of Antioch, and they're going where the gospel isn't. That's, that's where they're going. There, there is no gospel presence there. It is interesting, this is where Barnabas is from. I have to think that was a factor somewhere, okay? So sometimes the Holy Spirit operates very mysteriously. Sometimes he employs a lot of logic, okay? It makes complete sense. All right, Barnabas, let's go, let's go to your island. You, you can get us around. I, I think that's how it's going. Let's keep reading. Verse five, when they arrived at Salamis, which is a city on Cyprus, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. So they started on one side of the island. They shared the gospel all the way to the other. We, we don't know much of what happened on that journey, but here on the other side in this, this city of Paphos is where Luke decides he wants to focus the story. He wants to zero in on this opportunity that presented itself to this crew led by Barnabas and Saul. Verse seven, he, that is Bar-Jesus, was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Talk about an opportunity. You have a Roman proconsul. This is a Roman official over a massive area who's saying, I wanna hear what Barnabas and Saul are saying. I mean, th this, is, this is a pagan leader who, you know, had there been Christians in that time yet, I can't imagine they would have liked him very much. We have every reason to believe he was as corrupt as the next Roman official. But something interesting about missionaries. Missionaries tend to have a level of objectivity that natives of that culture don't have. So I, I, had there been Christians there at that time or you know, even friendly people, these missionaries are able to see opportunities that sometimes people embedded in the culture can't see just as easily. So I have two friends who are pastors and have both been uh, asked to pray for a president of the United States in public. So different presidents, one Democrat, one Republican, which makes this a safe story to tell. But what's interesting, both of their churches had a large number of people who did not like that president for, for policy issues. And so both of these pastors got a really hard time for praying publicly with the president of the United States, both Republican and Democrat. And both of these pastors would say, this has nothing to do with policy or practice, this is the most powerful man in the world asking me to pray the word of God over him. You, you do this. But often when we're in our own culture, it's harder to see through, our, through the cultural norms and idols opportunities like Saul and Barnabas have here in front of them. 
one time when I was living overseas, I, I had the opportunity to be on the radio. There was a very progressive radio station. And, and I'm not saying like, I'm, I, you know, maybe in America, I've got all kinds of blind spots, okay? Over here in, in Europe, there's a little more objectivity because there's just a lot about the culture I didn't know. And so this radio station, I knew they were very progressive. I didn't realize quite how progressive they were, but they asked me to come on the radio and share a Christian view on this specific topic. So the host was this very delightful trans woman, and we were surrounded by the farthest left that uh, that, that country has, but I got the opportunity to share the gospel and, and say how the gospel, uh, what gospel implications there are on the topic that we were, that they were teaching, they were talking about. Well, a number of local Italian churches were incensed that I was on the radio. They were incensed that I would lend my credibility, which is funny, I had no credibility over there, but my credibility to that far left radio station. But for me, it was a no brainer. They wanted me to come on and talk about Jesus. And so there's just some ways that missionaries have this objectivity and, and it's unique. Many of you have, more than most churches this size have been missionaries and you actually return with an objectivity that is very helpful to the church as well. So Barnabas and Saul, they took advantage of this opportunity with the proconsul, but when they did, they immediately faced opposition in the form of this magician, Elimus, who was also called Bar-Jesus. He felt threatened, verse eight. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So the name Bar-Jesus means son of Jesus, which is... Probably not that significant because the name of Jesus, the name Jesus was a common name back then, but he was a false prophet who knew that these Christians could present him with a problem. If the proconsul thinks that they have a better line to God than bar Jesus, this is gonna hurt his, his influence and his power that he has in that society. So he, he doesn't want the proconsul to listen and believe what it is that Saul and Barnabas are saying. And really, we do get to kind of the heart of all opposition to the gospel here. It's not, I'm, I'm not talking about indifference, That's, that could be something else, but when you have someone who is really opposed to the gospel, vehemently opposed, it's almost always because it's, conf- it's threatening some idol in their own heart. And, you know, for, it, it could be just like Elimus, that it's threatening his power and influence. If, if, if I believe in the gospel, I have to give up my power and my influence. It could be it threatens the way that we use our money. It could be that it threatens a sexual ethic that we want to hold. It, it threatens the kind of people we would date. It, it could threaten lots of areas of our life. It could threaten just being seen as a smart, intellectual, free thinker. But whenever there's vehement opposition to the gospel, we as Christians should thoughtfully kind of ask ourselves, why is it this person's threatened? What's the idol that we're actually running up against? And it feels like Paul can just see to the core of bar Jesus, and this is where we we pick it back up in verse nine. But Saul, who was also called Paul, first time Luke says that, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Now, 
Paul's bold here, a little more bolder than Jim would be. At my core, I'm a small town mayor, just wants everybody to be happy. Paul's, he's an apostle, okay? He's, he's got this gift, this prophetic gifting, and he goes straight for the jugular. He's an apostle, he can do. But he says, you call yourself Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus, but your name really should be Bar-Devil because you oppose the word of God. He tells him he will be blind in just a minute. The Holy Spirit does exactly that and the proconsul, amazed, believes in Jesus. And what we have here in this proconsul is the first ever recorded Christian out of Gentile culture with no background in Judaism. So we see all these developments in the Christian church in this one passage. So you have the first organized mission from the local church. You have the first fruits. You have the first Gentile Christian with no history in Judaism. But then what you also see in this passage is a handing of the baton from Barnabas to Paul. It, it, every commentator notes the, the literary devices that Luke uses are very intentional to show not only is power shifting from Jerusalem to Antioch, the baton in terms of the mission influence worldwide is being squarely handed into Paul's hands. In verses two and seven, Luke says Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. Then in verse nine, he says Saul, who is also called Paul, again, He doesn't change his name. It's because he's in Greek-speaking territory. Paul's using his missionary name the the way they would have said Saul. They would have have called him Paul. And then in chapter 13, which we're going to, I mean, sorry, verse 13, what we're going to look at more next week, Luke has a very different way of referring to this missionary group. He calls them Paul and his companions. Paul is the leader. Paul is the leader of the worldwide missionary movement, not Barnabas, not John, not anybody else back in Jerusalem or Antioch. Luke is saying the baton has been handed off. It's Paul now. And I love this part of the story because where has Paul been for 12 years? Sidelined. It feels like, I don't know all that was going on in his life, but he was in Arabia, he was in Tarsus, he spent the last two years developing the church in Antioch but I love this because we can feel forgotten about. You know, we can feel sidelined. I know some of you are here, want to be missionaries, and God has not opened up that door. I know some of you feel sidelined and don't know what God is going to do with the rest of your story. But that was Paul. Paul has been sidelined for over a decade. But what we're going to start seeing are the most influential years of his life. God's timeline is not always the same as ours. So I love this part of the story. Your story is not finished yet, just like Paul's hadn't been at that moment either. And what's crazy to think about, unless you're here and you are, if you have pure Jewish lineage, we could put you into a slightly different category, but most of us don't. Most of us come from pagan cultures. Most of us, whether it's our parents or our grandparents, or in my family's case, my great, 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 great grandparents, at some point, our people were pagans worshiping stars and trees. And the reason that we believe today is because at some point, some sent one who left their culture and their comforts entered into our culture, and whether it was that sent one or somebody that sent one reach, the gospel came to us. 
maybe through our ancestors, maybe just to us, but we're products of this mission movement that began in this passage. I mean, that's amazing to think about. You can directly connect every single one of us in this room to this passage. We should just have this deep sense of awe and thanks for the missionaries who have entered into our context. You know, it's not, God's, not, God's not making us all go do missions to earn our righteousness. He has reached us with missionaries. He reaches us first, he gives us everything first, then he gives the privilege of going out. And this is what our entire faith is based on because Jesus was the first and the ultimate missionary. You wanna talk about somebody leaving their culture and their comforts to enter into another strange culture. No one's ever done that more than Jesus Christ. He left glory and fame and honor to enter into this fallen sinful world, tempted in every way as any of us are, but he remained without sin. And not only did he experience the temptation he experienced the punishment that God's justice for our giving into that temptation. He knows our experience better than most of us ever will because we're shielded that because he took the punishment of God's wrath on the cross in our place. So the heart of missions is just giving out what we've already received in spades. And every missionary who goes out, they have this deep sense, the ones that I have known Either they had a little bit in the beginning, but it would, it would grow. That the reason Jesus came is to deliver us from our culture to his, from our world to his. And so they're leaving their home knowing the guarantee of the home that is coming for them in Jesus Christ. They know what, while they're, 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 there is a measure of temporal discomfort, what is coming their way eternally is gonna make them completely forget about any discomfort in this world. You know, the, the missionaries understand Jesus' words in Matthew 19 when he says, and everyone who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. You know, this is one of those blessings, these weird blessings where the blessing is in this life and the one to come. These are real hardships. But Jesus has promises for those missionaries. I will bless you in this life and in the next. And they also know that not only is Jesus the one sending, the Holy Spirit sending, the Holy Spirit is empowering as well. This is the fulfillment of Jesus' promise in Matthew 28, lo, I will be with you always, always, anywhere, at any time. Jesus said that he will be with us and he is in the form of the Holy Spirit inside of us, leading us. We're clothed in his righteousness no matter what culture we're in. He hears our prayers no matter where we are in the world. And, and it, when missionaries who leave this country and maybe have to lose every bit of, an Amer of Americanism as they are, that's a terrible sentence. Missionaries who leave and lose all parts of their American life and personality, they are never going to lose a fraction of their identity and citizenship in heaven. And in many cases, they're gonna understand that identity even better than they ever would have had they stayed in their home culture. When I came to Orlando Grace Church, I won't say anything about the other two churches, don't ask me about them, but one of the things that really 
impressed Angela and me. And, and, and there, there, there were a number, but one of the things was the global f- missional footprint this church has for its size. The number of members who have been sent out, not just missionaries we find and support, all of our missionaries that we support, not because this is by design, it's just how it happened, were people who are from this church who left and were sent out all around the world. And that heart for missions captivated us. And so this is something that we, is a rich part of the history of this church that we wanna keep the pedal down on. We wanna keep the gas down on. And, and we wanna do it by doing things by like really hearing from God about this passage. And prayerfully considering, is God sending you? Are you the one that God is nudging to send? Or are, are, are you somebody who God's saying, you need to come alongside the sent ones in a unique way, praying for them, giving up meals to, to, to pray for them and commune with God and seek his wisdom and financially come alongside and make sure that they can offer the gospel free of charge to any to whom they may be speaking. The hope is that we would all be engaged in the mission in some way. It seems like everybody in Antioch was engaged in the mission, whether it was Barnabas and Saul or all the people back in Antioch. This is a piece of the heritage of this church that we want to embrace and see by God's grace grow in both breadth and depth in the coming years. Let's pray. God, I am so thankful for this missionary movement that reached us and we're thankful that that it, it isn't like other religions where you have to give a certain number of your years as a life as a missionary to do certain things to be in your good favor. You assure us of your favor and your grace in Jesus Christ simply through faith. After that, it is just a privilege to be involved in all that you call us into and let us be a part of, that we would know you better, be more fulfilled knowing that we are a part of a purpose and a plan that is greater than anything we could ever create in and of our, in, of, or for ourselves. God, we thank you for the faithful ones in this passage. We thank you for your faithfulness to us in Jesus Christ, and we pray that that faithfulness would change us, would make us more faithful, more willing, and more excited to be a part of your plan for your gospel to go where it's not. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.